community, gentrification, generational wealth, low status, brain drain. When you hear those terms, what comes to mind for you? And if you know what those words mean, have you thought about how they play out in your own neighborhoods? Because even if you haven't seen these dynamics at play yourself, they are definitely happening where you live. And we're gonna tell you why that matters, not only to you, but to the future of your neighborhoods and communities, regardless of whether you're in a big city or a small town. Today, we are so fortunate to be able to sit down with Majora Carter and discuss her new book, Reclaiming Your Community. She not only talks to us about all of those terms we mentioned, but also about things like the nonprofit industrial complex, which if you've ever supported or are part of a nonprofit, you want to understand. And also things like poverty level economic maintenance, which will blow your mind. Well, at least it did for me, because it may be one of those things you saw, but you didn't understand until it's pointed out to you. So get ready to think more broadly about the communities you know in ways that you never expected. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Would you please introduce yourself for our audience? Sure. I am Majora Carter from the South South Bronx, and I am a real estate developer and an urban revitalization strategist and also the author of Reclaiming Your Community. You don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. So I'm super excited to be here because I was really blown away by the perspectives you talk about in your book. And I'm super grateful that we get to speak with you and hopefully help some of our listeners rethink their views on a whole bunch of things, including the nonprofit industrial complex. And P.S. I love that you included those definitions at the start because it's like, yes, this is very key. And also (laughs) how we think about approach and treat low status communities in this country. But let's talk about the problem that you lay out in your book, especially at the start. So factually speaking, yes, there are wealthy neighborhoods in this country. There are also incredibly poor, poverty-stricken neighborhoods in this country. And so many people say that they want to help. But can you discuss why we're basically set up to perpetuate divides in our neighborhoods? Yeah. So I do define uh, low status communities as the type of communities that we're working in particular, you know, to support and sort of take on this talent retention community development strategy that we are promoting. And But low status, for those of you who haven't read the book, essentially are those places where inequality is just assumed by both people from inside and outside the neighborhood. They're the places where you just assume that, you know, the health outcomes will be lower, the educational attainment will be lower, there are more people involved in the justice system. And, you know, for the people that are you know, in those communities, there's a lack of hope for their ever really succeeding if they stay in those communities. And there's also, you know, other kind of programs and policies that are there to basically make it so that the talented ones in those communities are supported to actually leave those communities in order to basically make someone else's community better with the talent that they have. So first of all, I love the use of low status as terminology, because I think that's so powerful. You just mentioned sort of at the end of what you were saying about people leaving those communities, right? Sort of that brain drain. Can you go into some of the other problems with how those systems have been set up to help? Well, if you think about it, you know, just in terms of like a monetary sense, you know, there have been billions of dollars, as well as government, you know, philanthropic and government dollars that go into 
these certain communities, like the low status ones, and they come in all different, you know, stripes. I mean, they're inner cities, like the one I'm from, you know, they could be Native American reservations, they could be, you know, poor white, you know, towns that used to have like, you know, industries in them, but don't anymore. And, uh, but, you know, all low status, basically, they're the places that people measure success by how far they get away from them. And, but again, billions of dollars of philanthropic government money goes into those places, but they remain economically stagnant. And so I found that a little curious because poverty is not a cultural attribute. Clearly, it's like, it's not a part of our DNA. It's not like, oh, you're born into this culture of poverty. You're born into the conditions in which poverty exists, right? That are often made by various uh, forces outside the control of people in those communities. But there's lots of money to be made by maintaining it. You could either look at, you know, the fact that there's lots of government money that goes into the building of affordable government subsidized housing, even around healthcare, pharmacies and health clinics benefit from the fact that there's people who do have low health outcomes in low status communities. And it's just like a constant, you know, cycle of money going in to support what is essentially the concentration of poverty in those same communities. I really want to go into that a little bit deeper, but I want to go back to one thing you had mentioned earlier, which was talking about the people in low status communities also believing sort of this low status belief. And there was this quote that you had, and I'm just going to read it at the start of chapter four from your book, which where you were talking about not only the January 6th insurrection, but all of these things. This quote that says, treason, destruction of property, torture, murder, were these crimes committed to protect something the perpetrators felt was deserved or thought they would lose, was fear a motivator? The answer is likely all of my suppositions above as well as many others, but to me, more important than the actual answer is that the underlying foundation that supports these shameful and violent outbursts comes from a widespread and accepted belief in a racially unequal status quo. And that what I found it really powerful was that those beliefs are also being held by people in low status communities. And so that it creates this sort of cycle of, I would love to hear a little bit more about how you came to that conclusion. Yeah. Well, you know, it also just speaks to the effectiveness of white supremacy, you know, that tells us that being that racially unequal, like there's whiteness at the top of it, even though we know now that it was a construct that was created for white wealthy folks, you know, to keep down the ones that were poor. But that's a whole other story that we can talk about. And that is that part of history. When I learned it, I was like, oh my God, like if everybody knew that, it would like, I mean, our, most of our heads would explode. But anyway, there, the idea is that the way to keep people down is to also make sure that there are just a few within those communities that actually can rise above but you make them believe that they won't do well if the rest of them do well. And that's never the case. I feel like creating more opportunities for more of us to succeed literally helps us all do better. Whether, you know, new immigrants coming into our, the country, when they like form together to support each other, yes, they do better. That's the whole point. And I feel like in particular, you know, for Black folks, it has absolutely been the opposite of it. And, and we're still dealing with, I think, that trauma that internalized trauma of, you know, being people that were literally pushed down as a result, you know, of the white supremacist actions that created this country. And, and we're still dealing with the residue of that. So it's easy for us to kind of attack each other sometime because frankly, everybody else does too. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't mean to laugh, but it's like, sometimes if I don't, I'll cry, but that is often what we deal with and, and have to tolerate sometime. And that's why it's important for us to just to step up and do something different. 
I think that's really powerful in the concept of you know, rising by lifting others, right? We all rise together, which is something we really talk about a lot on the podcast and something that seems so hard at times to actually convince people of that once, if we can all succeed, if we all get to a certain place, we will all be better off. And yeah, I know it seems so simple. I feel like my seven-year-old can understand this concept, but it's a lot harder for adults in practice. Mm -hmm. Yes. But don't you think it is all in our like communal psychology? Because I feel like Say you're on a road trip and you drive through another city, those landmarks that you talked about that perpetuate that same sense of helplessness, like you know what part of town you're in. And if you see the pawn shop, the bail bond shop, like you know that gut feel, right? And to feel like how this is connected to this idea of helping, but like how do we fool ourselves into believing that perpetuating this, you know, the savior coming in with all this money and helping, like we're not seeing it as clearly as I think you're able to see it right now. And I love that you noticed this. Yeah. Well, I mean, what I noticed, you know, from going from a place like where I'm from, the South Bronx and traveling around the country, you know, with the work that I've been doing is, you know, I noticed that there are South Bronxes all over the place. Right. And I also noticed that there's really only two kinds of real estate development in American low status communities. There's one, you know, the kind that, you know, assumes gentrification leads to displacement. And that's a very common narrative that we see. And I think most of us are super afraid of. And then there's the other kind that we call poverty level economic maintenance. And it is, it's those bail bond places and the check cashing stores and, you know, all the dollar stores, you know, congregating in one place. And, you know, it's like lots of pharmacies and liquor stores and things like, and very highly subsidized affordable housing and homeless shelters all concentrated together. Poverty level economic maintenance. Somebody's making money. They're making lots of money. Let's just be real clear. But it's not helping the people in those communities by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, but no, that's not necessarily true because there are some folks who will always like, you know, rise up and folks will notice. And that's the brain drain that moves away from those communities. And what we're trying to do with our talent retention uh, community development approach, it's enticing those Cinderella stories that folks really love to hear. It's like, oh my goodness, they like pull themselves up from their bootstraps and they're from this neighborhood, blah, blah, blah. And now look what they're doing. And it's just like, why can't they do that in our own neighborhoods and create the kind of real beauty and health and well being economically and socially and even spiritually in our own neighborhoods? And because I really do think that when you do this kind of approach and really, I hope it's normalized around the country, that we're not just supporting you know, the communities that need that help, that economic recovery there. But I think what we're doing is literally creating the kind of, you know, of repairing of the social fabric of the entire country, not just the neighborhoods that desperately need to have the horrific effects of concentrated poverty undone. I think that's really important for everyone to hear, because I think that attention has always sort of been focused in those communities. And when we're thinking about how do we rise as a nation, right, it has to be a bigger approach. And so, you know, when I hear you say, talk about this and talk about revitalizing communities, too, and I think about the example of the Boogie Down Grind Cafe that you talk about, which P.S., my boy's favorite book growing up, one of the favorite books was How the Beat Was Born, which is a story of like <gasps> DJ Cool Herc, right? And yeah. yeah, like this is like on <laughs> loop in our house. So yeah, so I was immediately like, yes. <laughs> you know, but the thought that you put into that space, right? And the role that it plays in the community. And then the story that you tell at the end of the book about 
you know, you're walking and you see this regular at the cafe, this younger man, and he's like, <laughs> well, but the cafe's closed. Like, why are you here? And you're like, because I live here. And he's like, what? You know, it just blew his mind. You talked about gentrification a little bit. And I think when people hear the word gentrification, right, they feel a way about it. Mm -hmm. And so as they should, right? But I would love to hear, you know, your take on how people sometimes misunderstand, right, the concept of gentrification. And, you know, you refer to your fan club in the book <laughs> when they talk about self-gentrification. And so I would love for you to break some of that down for us. Sure. I mean, well, gentrification, that generally means that outsiders are coming in to change a community for their purposes and not the ones that are inside. And reclaiming the community as we use it is about retaining the talent that's already there so that it's there, you know, along with the rest of their neighbors are working to improve the quality of life for the people that are there for their own economic and social and environmental future, period. So it is literally development that's by them and for them. So it's not somebody else coming in to do it for them at all. But yet you had a lot of resistance that you faced, even from within your community, for attempting to change the face of the neighborhood from the inside. Yeah, I definitely had some resistance that I've had a lot of love to, which is frankly where I spend most of my time. But yes, so there was a, oh, what you're referring to is that there was a moment where someone said, where I was quoted by saying, uh, using a, a phrase called self-gentrification, which I thought was really interesting. And I didn't make it up. Actually, the first person I heard make it up was actually, you know, a reverend and the head of a historically black college down in Charlotte, North Carolina, called the Johnson C. Smith University. And he used it, you know, to describe the work that was going on, you know, because of the university and the community that it was situated in and the some financial, you know, investors that came in to support the redevelopment of that community by the people that were in it. But Interestingly enough, not everybody in the community knew what was actually going on. And so those are the ones that were just like, we're being gentrified because immediately they saw development happening and immediately assumed that, of course, it couldn't be anybody from our community because we've been led to believe that's not what we do. That's what folks come into our community and do to us. And, and so it was Reverend Carter, and he was also a Carter, but no relation to me, you know, who said, oh, I love being associated with like cool people like that. He was just like, wait a second, like this is not gentrification. People aren't coming in from outside. These are people from your own community that are doing this work. This is development that is biased and for us. And I was just like, if anything, it's like, it's self-gentrification because we want good things for our neighborhoods too. And I was like, oh, what an interesting phrase. It's like, yeah, we like nice things too. And yo, some people were like, oh, it's all they heard was gentrification literally. And it was just the craziest thing. And some people even went a little deeper, which was really frightening, you know, that act and took offense to the fact that people, as they said, people like me, which were people from the neighborhood, it just pains me to even say it, people from the neighborhood who went away to college and are doing okay for themselves actually come back and stay. And if that wasn't, and yes, I was a card carrying member of the nonprofit industrial complex, you know, who said that to me, to my face, as if it was a bad thing that someone from our own community would want to come back and stay and work to redevelop it from the inside in service of, of ourselves. You know, this reminds me of a conversation I had with my sister-in-law, who my husband's family is from New Orleans or right outside New Orleans. And we were talking about the concept of building generational wealth there. And she was like, I want to buy a house because, you know, I want this to be where I'm from and I want to live there. And suddenly because it's New Orleans and 
you know, there's a whole Airbnb market that comes in, right? There's this sort of rising prices for property because you have people who are turning it into Airbnb sort of homes and cycles. And so frustrating for her to not be able to buy in that community. And so it reminds me not in the the same way, but in a different way of the story of losing your family house, right? And the power of owning property and owning property and where you grew up and where you want to change. So I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's just a tragic story. And it pains me just to know that it happens every single day because the whole you know, idea around it is that, listen, because I want to be real clear. Like we don't think that gentrification starts like when you start seeing, you know, cute cafes or even Airbnbs, you know, pop up in neighborhoods that didn't have them before. It starts before that when we don't, with people from those communities start to feel like there's no value there. So we do sell early and cheap, you know, the Airbnbs came after that. Because if folks were willing to sell their properties, you know, it was the same reason why my family, my siblings, you know, didn't, couldn't even fathom the idea that anything in our neighborhood would be worth anything. I mean, it was literally like, it's cute, Majora, what you're doing, you know, good on you, like loving up on the community, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I'm going to move because I want a better quality of life. And I understand that, but gentrification starts. We don't see the value in our own communities. And, you know, that's a hard thing to say. It's a hard thing to feel, but you know what? You know, environmentalist in me is just like, what was the best time to start planting a tree? 20 years ago, second best time today. So if you got it, don't sell it. You know, talk to your neighbors, like be a part, you know, of the fact that like some of us can still do have, you know, assets in our own communities. You know, some of us, you know, could be building businesses in our own communities. Let's start thinking about how do we take that cycle, you know, did like has been going on for a long time, leaving most of us behind. How do we like catch on to some of it so that we can reclaim it for our own community? That's what we want to think about more of. As I hear you talking about this, though, I think about the resistance that you met going through this, for example. And I think about people like anybody who is growing up in this education system, especially if it's not a well-funded part of town. We know the education system like corresponds to the property values of the area in this country that you live in. And so how do you get the, not just the intellectual knowledge of how does one understand what it means to keep a house and and that sort of stuff, but also the character traits that you need to have to have the internal stamina (laughs) to hold on to this stuff and find the people to learn from. Like, I feel like those are really two major hurdles for everybody especially if you're in those kind of educational settings. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, the kind of hustle and just, you know, the stick-to-itiveness and just like a real firm belief in like loving up, you know, on my community, those were the aspects of my personality that were instilled right here. And I hope, you know, folks can get to see that too, that there's always been a lot of love and caring and real community within communities like mine. And so like, that's where it first came from, you know, whether it was my mom, you know, essentially like opening up our home to people who needed at the time, or like people in my neighborhood who have been literally taking care of each other since as long as I know, you know, and did like our neighborhood was a tough one. Absolutely. But never occurred to me that there weren't amazing people in it. 
You know, I wish we wanted there to see more of them, but mostly we didn't have the kind of infrastructure, like the lifestyle infrastructure to make it so that we saw each other on a regular basis. That's why we've been advocating so hard and building it and using our own money to start, you know, things like, you know, the cafes that we started, you know, the parks that we built, you know, there's all sorts of things. That's why like community is not just a place, it's an activity, but you've got to give people ways to be and do community. You know, it's interesting. I love hearing that because it reminds me of a conversation, Misasha, that you and I had with Aurora and Kelly, who are like a, another best friend pair, one Afro-Latina and one white woman. But when we talked about what makes a community, we sort of talked about this difference between the communities like yours, where the infrastructure is such that you walk by, you see people, it's like a really tight knit sense versus sometimes in wealthy white like communities where it's like this garage door, you are, you're isolated self. I wonder how much that mindset for these developers, companies these that are coming in and saying, we're going to fix this. They just don't understand. They've never understood community to be the same thing that you're discussing. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I want is more opportunities for the things that did endear me to my community, even though I, yes, absolutely wanted to leave it, you know, but that was more for lifestyle things. It wasn't because I felt unsafe or didn't feel loved. It was more like, there ain't nothing to do around here. But, and I think a lot of people feel the same way. It's more about how do we, you know, create the right kind of infrastructure so that people feel like we can do even more of what makes us happy right here and we could do it together. And why are we taking like our best selves and the best parts of us and literally taking it to somebody else's community to share there as opposed to building it right here? And, you know, I really want to see even more people who are doing this, you know, within not just my community, but all over the country. And we are seeing quite a few of that, a lot of that happening, which is super, super awesome. That's awesome. Are you hoping to reach probably a lot of different types of people, but are you hoping to, you know, with this mindset and this book, reach other people who are in similar communities that you're in to help change it from the inside? Or are you also hoping to reach people who've been involved in the nonprofit complex, you know, industrial complex so far and try to shift their mindset? And if so, you know, how do you help shift that? Totally. I mean, I think, look, I felt like I had to call out the nonprofit industrial complex because it is such a, like, honestly, just they've been perpetuating white supremacy, like, since their earliest days, you know, and being really awful around gender issues as well. I mean, it's just, they need some help. And they do need to recognize that they have been a, been spent more time perpetuating themselves than actually, you know, dealing with the real problems in our communities. Because if that was true, things would be a little bit better. Like you can't spend all that money, like billions and billions of dollars, like all the time and see the same exact thing, see the same social issues, like popping up in, in the way that they do. And, you know, I just find that troubling. So Yes, I would love to have like one of those real conversations about it. And, you know, as Lin-Manuel Miranda, who actually wrote a blog for my book, said, you know, this is an exciting conversation worth having because, and I'm not saying it's an easy conversation and, and y'all know this, the conversations you have are not easy either. They're conversations that need to be had. It's like, you know, how, you know, white supremacists have, has philanthropy been in their giving? You know, have they been supportive of people of color? I mean, there was an amazing study that came out that showed like less than 2%, you know, of climate funding from big, huge philanthropies and, and small ones, less than 2% went to people of color led organizations. And they're the ones most impacted by climate issues. It's just like, how are you doing that? Like, seriously, you should be ashamed of yourself. But, and some were, some when they were called on it, were like, gosh, we do that. 
And others were like, and hopefully we'll get to those too, but I don't know. But the ones that we want that actually are open, those are the ones we need to talk to. And hopefully the rest will come along. There I go making friends again. <laughs> I love it when you said that in the book too, because I, I think Sarah and I both understand that. <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> you know, what I hear when, it, you know, you're talking about having these conversations, right? And, you know, that, and I think you detail one where you, in the book, where you you know, or passing someone and on the street and you turn around and you have this conversation, which wasn't sort of a one-sided, your side conversation and more like an attack on the other side. There's a lot in these conversations that make people very uncomfortable, right? And you talk about in your book, learning to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that's one of our favorite topics on here. It's like, basically, it is the subtitle of our own book. And I know. <laughs> so what tips do you have for people who are struggling with this? Because I think this is such a like a gatekeeper, right, to people even wanting to engage in these conversations in the first place. Yeah. And I think on either side, it's like, if you're the one trying to initiate those conversations, like you need to take care of yourself, right? Because it is hard, you know, to be the one like always like, no, no. Can we talk? Can we do that? Blah, blah, blah. And after a while, it's like, it hurts and it does hurt because you can see it so clearly. Like if we just like met each other a little bit, we can move things forward. And so taking care of yourself, I think is a huge, huge thing, whatever that looks like to you. It's like, I'm a woman of faith. Believe me, I have to like spend time praying, meditating, like, cause other, if I don't, it's, you can see it. And the other thing is like on the other side is it's like, well, what are you really afraid of? Like if you really, really thought that what you're up to is super, super cool, you probably wouldn't be having these issues with like trying to look at them in a different way. And if you do feel that way, then maybe I can learn something from you, but let's have that conversation. But I do think that it's the burden does fall on the ones who are trying to have that conversation. And that's why I wrote this daggone book, because I figured it after if it's out as a book, you, people would see it. Then it wasn't just, you know, Majora like over, you know, in, on corner of Hunts Point and, and Seneca, you know, doing this little coffee shop because it's like her little experiment. No, it's actually like it is an experiment in like what how communities see themselves and do they want to see themselves in, in a way that actually feeds their own goals for their future and their own aspirations. I appreciate that. I mean, I noticed that you talked about meditation. It's something Misasha and I've been talking a lot about this idea of taking care of ourselves, pacing ourselves, because these are not easy conversations and, and easy topics to be handling. And so I appreciate you sort of re-emphasizing the importance of humanity first. And then the second part, I question I had for you then is, is how do you gauge your success, right? Because when you have big ideas, like the ones you have, you could work 24 seven and still have more stuff to do. And that's not possible as a human being to do that. Uh -huh. How do you carry yourself forward with your big dreams? I have to say I'm learning how to do it a lot better than I did. When some of it is like actually recognizing that there's but so much I can do. And, and the rest is just going to it's going to work itself out, but if I can put myself out there in the best way I possibly can so that folks can see, you know, that I'm real in that way. And I'm trying really hard to make sure that I make it happen in the way that I can. I'm not saying that, you know, that my approach is like the only thing to do, but I'm putting it out there as one, you know, cause I really do believe this, you know, talent retention isn't going to necessarily change all of gentrification, but I think that without talent retention, we have no hope of addressing gentrification. Like I do believe that. And 
So that's why I'm like trying, you know, to put things out there so that folks realize it. At least it's part of an exercise that we can use to help make our world a better place. But yes, it's, I do what I can. I get caught trying (laughs) and that's about it. That's so good. It's so human. Like this is such a huge idea to have an answer, a possible answer for gentrification and how to lessen the wealth gap in this country, how to help people feel connected. Like there's so many fundamental things about our humanity that you are solving for with this idea. And I am so grateful that you have put this book out, that you've been doing this work for so long, but hopefully with this book, even more and more people will understand this and bring it back to their communities as well. Yes. That is literally my prayer. Just get it out there, you know, argue about it, whatever you want, but, you know, take it in so that hopefully there will be some folks who will just be like, yeah, you know, like, why don't we, why can't we have this kind of stuff in our community? And you know what? And I have been thinking about, you know, doing something that would help us reinvest right here. And you know, and again, it doesn't have to be like huge, huge things. I mean, when we started reclaiming that dump, like honestly, that turned into what is now a national award-winning park. It was me, sometimes my dog (laughs) and, you know, a few people that whose lunch I would have to buy in order to help start with cleanups. And it was just sort of like, but it was was that persistent drumbeat where I was just like trying to encourage people to think about the future that they wanted, you know, and some of them probably only came because, you know, I was Mrs. Carter's daughter and they felt bad for me. I don't know. I don't even care. But the point is now, you know, some of them don't even know my name. They just enjoy, you know, what's there. It is such a beautiful park. Like It really is. And I appreciate also (laughs) one thing I want people to hear is that it's not an overnight thing, right? It requires both big picture vision and conviction and patience and persistence. And I think in this day and age, we're so used to expecting a quick turnaround. Oh, oh, I want to have that cafe. The funding went through. Oh, well, like we give up. And I think what you're saying is believe and stay. Yes. Yes. And yes, believe and stay. And also the patience, you know, what I understand that the etymology actually comes from the word strength. And I'm like, oh, okay. I like that because it suddenly turns it from like, oh, the patient, long suffering person into somebody who's like, I got this, you know, and I'm willing to wait. I think that's a source of power that folks can take because no, this is not easy. It's definitely not, you know, and being as under-resourced as I've been over these years. And yeah, I believe me, sometimes I look back and I am amazed, you know, at like the kind of stuff that we got done, you know, for like a buck and a quarter, you know, in comparatively to, you know, some of the people that I know have been working with a lot more more resources than, than I have been over these years, but, you know, but thank God, and just like, you know, my ancestors buoying me up that there has been change that other folks can see. And I am even more excited by the fact that, you know, folks take my example and like, it blows it through the roof, you know, for that, because I know that that's what's happening. I've seen it happen, you know, in the country. And I just want to see this happen more and more. I appreciate how you also emphasize that it doesn't have to be something huge, right? Because I think people think, you know, reclaiming your community and they're like, oh my gosh, I got to do this gigantic thing. And so, yeah, I love that. And I, you know, I think about my kids, right? And this is the other thing that really resonated with me as I was reading your book is like how we can teach this to our kids right now, right? So that they can start, they can do this, have this mindset now, as opposed to 
as we get more divided, right, as a country and as with wealth. And I think about, you know, my older son, who is all about, we talk about community so much. And he's like, he is the kid who would want to be making the park out of the dump, right? And so I was thinking, like, this is how we can carry that knowledge to them. So I appreciate all of that. Because, yeah, I think just about the power, the power for us as adults, but the power of that generation too. Absolutely. And so let's normalize that, that this is just a normal thing. You know, as much as you look, there's going to be some attrition from every community and that's fine, right? People should be able to go and like make themselves into whatever they want to be, wherever they want to go. That's great. But let's like dismiss this idea that the only way, especially in low low status communities, that anybody does anything is, is by leaving them. And that's unfortunately, a truth that we have to seriously address and, and ask, why are we like expecting that to be normal? It's like, no, I, I refuse. Mm-mm. I had to look it up to get the English translation because I wasn't sure how to say it, but Japanese, like the word when you were talking about patience and strength, gaman was the term that came to mind. And it's a Japanese word that basically means enduring the seemingly unbearable with patience and dignity. I mean, my Japanese grandmother would say that it's a character trait and a strength, a virtue in Japanese culture. Yeah. Enduring the seemingly, you know, unbearable, unbearable Oof. with patience and, and dignity. Mm-hmm. What else are you working on? Where can we, people find you? Oh yeah. So my most favorite project right now, it's so cool, but um, I, we're restoring this historic rail station in our community that was, that we acquired a few years ago. And it's actually the reason why my, like I grew up in this neighborhood because my dad was a Pullman porter and he won because he traveled all over the country on the trains and he won $15,000 at a racetrack in Los Angeles and literally carried it back on the train to New York city. He was living in Harlem at the time. And he found a house up in the Bronx to buy and he couldn't live there for two years because at the time this place was all white and he didn't quite feel safe. So he rented it to the family that, you know, that he bought it from. But what was interesting was because there was a, he bought it because there was this rail station in the neighborhood that was supposed to be reopened as a rail station. It had been closed for a while, but then they were going to reopen it. And so he was just like, well, that's where I want to be because that's my line. (laughs) And he wouldn't have to go all the way down into Penn Station to do there, but they never reopened it. But what he used to do was the conductor would slow the train down And when it came close to where he would, where the train station was, and he would climb up the embankment to walk two blocks to our house instead of going all the way down into Penn Station, which is our rail hub. So that's why he bought this, the house I grew up in. It was because of this building. And now it's just, it's just so hilarious to me that his baby daughter actually now owns that building and is redeveloping it into an event hall because it's got 20 foot high ceilings. It was designed by Cass Gilbert. This amazing, the first Stark attack that America had was Cass Gilbert. He did the Woolworth building and the US Supreme Court building. And, and it's just beautiful. And so we had a tiny little mention in last week's New York Times, you know, in the real estate section, but not enough pictures or whatever, but it's super awesome. And the best part is that, you know, we're building the capital stack for it. And it's going to be like a $2 million project or so, but a portion of that is going to be through an investment crowdfunding platform. That's going to allow folks give the opportunity to people in our own community to invest in a local real estate development project, get the same rate of returns, you know, as a large investor. So I'm just delighted that we have a chance to do that. 
That's so cool. Because I remember <laughs> reading about it and it was sort of stalled. And I was like, oh, I wonder what happened. That's amazing to hear that. Yes. Oh, we're back on, you know, we passed, um, you know, part one of the getting it on the national historic, you know, register, which means that we're eligible for this like amazing amount of like tax credits, which will be so awesome. That gives like 40%, you know, of the, all the construction costs for the project and we're going to need it. But um, and it's just such a beautiful building. And I'm just so excited to bring it back into you know, its former glory and so that it becomes this awesome, awesome, another awesome place within the community for it to see itself and its beauty reflected back onto it. That's so cool. I'm so excited to continue to follow all the developments you and the moves that you make. I love that you're offering this opportunity for reinvestment. Obviously, you practice what you preach or you know, you're preaching what you're practicing is basically what this is. And so I love it. Thank you for leading by such a powerful example. If people want to find your book and find more of your work and support you, where can they find you? So first of all, if you want to buy the book, absolutely go through a local bookseller, please, because that's, you want to support local and bookshop.org can help you do that. And also if you buy 10 copies or more of my book, I will personally come into your book group or your organizational meeting, whatever it is, and we can have a book group together. And so I'm happy to do that as well. You know, to find us, we're in MajoraCarterGroup.com. I'm on Instagram at uh, Majora Carter and also at Boogie Down Grind, which is also super fun. And yeah, just like, you know, and send me stories about like the kind of things you're working on doing in your community. And let's like build a community around that. And I just love to, because those kind of things make me so happy. I can't even tell you. So just looking forward to seeing more folks be their most fabulous selves because that's what we all are. You've been listening to the Dear White Women podcast and are the reason we are among the top one and a half percent of podcasts in the world. You rock. Did you love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to leave a rating and review. And it may seem like a pain, but it really helps. And make sure you're following us so you keep getting the newest episodes each Tuesday. Don't forget for all your non-podcast listener friends to tell them about our new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, which you can buy anywhere you buy books, including Amazon, where we would love your reviews. We're on Instagram and Twitter and are upping the game on our emails. And if you love us, send us an email at hello at dearwhitewomen.com to bring us into your company for a webinar or a workshop.